Hey everybody, I'm Francesca Maxime, and this is Wise Girl for January 17th, 2019, the first podcast of the year. Uh, Wise Girl is where we invite you to discover your own inner wisdom, which lies inside perhaps a little wise girl or wise little one, little guy inside that might have a lot to share um, if we learn how to establish a relationship with him or her and find out what it is that they may be needing to tell us. One of the ways that we can do that is through a method that was first really sort of uh, explored and named through uh, Dr. Eugene Denlin in Chicago and uh, his um, real body of work called Focusing. And one of the contemporaries and peers of uh, Dr. Denlin and also of um, her own practices, which we'll get into, uh, is Dr. Ann Weiser Cornell, American author, educator, worldwide authority on focusing the self-increase psychotherapeutic technique developed by uh, Eugene Genlin. And she's written several definitive books on focusing, including The Power of Focusing, A Practical Guide to Emotional Self-Healing, The Focusing Students and Companions Manual, and this book here, Focusing in Clinical Practice, which is specifically for uh, therapists and folks who want to begin to use focusing as either a integrated approach to the modalities that they currently use or perhaps learn how to uh, do it themselves as well. There's exercises in there. Um, she received a PhD in linguistics at the University of Chicago and while a graduate student there that is when she met uh, Jean and learned the technique of focusing and she has taught it around the world since 1980. Uh, welcome so much. Uh, welcome and thank you so much for being here, uh, Anne Weiser Cornell. Thank you, Francesca. What a pleasure to be with you today. I look forward to our conversation. I do too, and um, so much, so much to say, and uh, ah, so much to explore. Because I feel like focusing is one of those things that I was speaking to someone who had been a mindfulness meditation person for a while, as I am, and had said that when she found focusing, she was like, I hit it. That's it. This was the thing that, that got me. And I feel like there's a lot of practices and many people talk about that. There's, you know, some people chant, some people dance or Sufi dancing. There's, you know, there's all kinds of different practices that help us bring us into um, a certain kind of awareness that isn't maybe as obvious when we're trying to catch a taxi cab or, you know, making dinner, um, but perhaps could be. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit more um, or just begin to actually speak about what drew you to this work personally from your own history and upbringing and what was it about it that felt like it really called to you and touched you inside? Well, since focusing is such a well-kept secret, not, not uh, intentionally, but somehow many people haven't heard of it, even though it's been around for 50 years. And as you said, many people who are in this world, like in the mindfulness world and in the self-development and self-awareness world have heard of focusing, and yet many have not. And so let me just maybe define it in a few sentences, and then I'd love to answer how I came to it. And focusing is a simple awareness process of bringing attention to a funny kind of body sensation, like not just any body sensation, not just 
I ate too much or something like that. But a kind of body sensation that's about what's going on in our life, the situations we're in. So I could, I could be an artist painting a painting and I could be saying, well, do I sense that it's done or do I sense that something's missing? And it would be my felt sense that would give me the answer to that. Or I could be trying to figure out a troubling conversation I had with my, with my good friend and you know, something bothers me about how, how that went. And I could try to think that through or I could also pause and get this kind of holistic body sense that, hmm, it's some kind of, uh, and I'd find the word for the body sense of the conversation and I'd follow a kind of inquiry process as I stay with that. So focusing is basically a body-based awareness process that can be used to explore the kinds of issues we work on in therapy or creativity or things we're thinking about and so on. Beautiful. And yeah. Yeah. I just want to pause there for one moment and yeah. land for folks because I know you'll, you'll get to your own mm. magnetization um, toward it because it's so rich and beautiful what you're saying. And I can just hear um, folks saying, even folks that I've been teaching, um, you know, mindfulness and somatic experiencing uh, methods to say, I don't get the felt sense. What do you mean? I don't, I don't, I just feel kind of nothing or, and then I know that you've said um, that sometimes that feeling, even sometimes if someone says they feel numb or they're feeling nothing, can we be curious about what that numbness or nothingness is? There's really no such thing as feeling nothing, frankly. Yeah. But what people mean when they feel nothing is that they don't feel what they expected to feel. That they, Maybe they don't feel something really strong. And that happened to me, by the way, when I first tried to learn focusing from Eugene Gendlin. Uh, I happened to be someone, because of my background, I don't feel much, and I didn't feel much then. Now, by now, I've certain, that's certainly changed. But in those days, I would bring awareness and, to my body, and I'd keep feeling blank. And I'd look around the room, and I'd say, are other people feeling things? Because I'm not, you know. But looking back on it, based on what I know now, I was feeling a lot. I was feeling anxious about whether other people were feeling things, <laughs> anxious about whether I was doing it right, worried about whether that guy across the room was going to be interested in me or not. I, <laughs> but I wasn't counting those things because they uh -huh. weren't what I expected to feel. It would, and so one of the things we do when we learn focusing is be wider in allowing everything that we become aware of to be included. There's no exclusion here. I, I love what you're saying because it also reminds me of what a lot of times people will say on a, a meditation retreat or something that like, uh, I got to open my eyes and see if other people are having these mystical experiences that I'm not having or um, gee, I have this, they call it a Vipassana romance where I'm, you know, feeling like I'm you know, attracted to the person on the other side of the hall or something like that. And I can't talk to them because it's a silent retreat, but I'm, my fantasies in my head are going uh -huh. in that direction and I must be a terrible meditator as a consequence. <laughs> and, so. and all of those are very natural experiences to have and we can turn toward them with interested curiosity. And the other thing I, I want to say to, your, to our listeners who are saying, what is she talking about? Um, imagine packing for a trip and 
you've got your packing list and everything from the list is in the suitcase and but you have this uneasy feeling that there's something you forgot and that is a felt sense and you and notice you could choose to push it away and ignore it oh no i've got everything on the list or you could kind of stay with it and follow what is it and what what's kind of interesting is that if you if you never find what it is and you leave the house and you you know, maybe you found a couple of other things that you forgot, but the uneasy feeling didn't shift. And so your body is saying, well, yeah, I remembered my vitamins and I remembered my contact lenses, but I, that's not it yet, you know. And then you get on the plane and you've still got this, uh, 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 uh. it's not loud enough to really bother you, but it, uh, you go, and then you remember what it is. It's like, oh, right, I wanted to bring extra tea. And your body goes, ah, even though now you can't bring your extra tea, you get this relaxed feeling because you got what it was. That's a felt sense. And it, live, and it lives until it's met. That's right. And it may live in some cases a long time. And the things we do, humans, to try to push away and ignore these little nudges from inside us, right? Does everybody know about those things? Staying on the computer too long or, or eating or watching Netflix. Uh, and if you, don't, if you don't do those indulgences at some point, you turn awareness toward yourself. What am, what, what's, what's here that wants my awareness? That's a beautiful practice and it, it's like a mindfulness practice because it is bringing awareness to what's here now with an open quality of I'm not going to judge it when it comes but it isn't but it doesn't exactly correspond to mindfulness focusing has aspects that aren't the same as mindfulness that have to do with a more personal kind of inquiry like staying with this letting this dialogue with me and and so on so did you still want to know how I found focusing? I yes, told you. A little no, bit. that's beautiful. I was 22 years old. Yes, you were a baby from the Midwest. I was a baby. And, and I, I just feel enormously lucky when I tell people my story now. They, oh, I wish I'd found focusing at 22. You know, and it certainly, I believe it saved my life because my 20s were hard enough as they were. And, but um, the word was out that this funny guy, this interesting, weird guy was teaching something for free in the, in the community church next to the university. And so come on down, you know, sitting in a room of a hundred people packed in there that uh, sitting on tables and, and just to get in the room. And that's Eugene Genlin, an absolute genius, an amazing, amazing person. And his first words out of his mouth were, if you're here, you belong here. Because he was a total, totally devoted to inclusion, acceptance and inclusion of all people, all ways of thinking, all ways of being. And that's the same philosophy he taught us to have toward ourselves. And I, I just, I knew I was in the right place. I knew I needed it. I desperately needed it. It was very hard to learn it, but it was, it became my community. Beautiful, beautiful. And what, I mean, you can either get more or less into the personal piece, but I'll share that, you know, part of my own personal deepening into 
um, looking at some of these other practices, what are the alternatives, is because traditional psychotherapy hadn't been working for me. I had been, um, you know, sort of really questioning, like, why do people do what they do? Who, you know, not only so, not so much getting to that big existential question of, you know, who are we or why are we here, but just like, really like, how does this work? Or why don't, why don't I believe these things about me that I think may be true rationally that are good that I don't really feel? And I, I just wasn't able to contact, even though I had sort of figured out some stuff cognitively left brain wise, um, my history, my imprinting, my family, my experiences culturally, societally, whatever, whatever it is that gave me the lens and the perspective that was uniquely mine, it didn't actually get me to a place where I was able to feel like I could contact what you're talking about mm -hmm. and be with it in the way that focusing requires without feeling like I was going to drown in it like mm -hmm. quicksand. Yeah. Um, and so it kept me away from it for a long time. And then finally, when there was like no other alternatives, Mm -hmm. And I kind of just was like, okay, we're either going in or not. Um, then that's when things started to crack open. And it's certainly been challenging ever since. But I think that may keep people away from some of these things. But I don't know if you can speak to perhaps a little bit more about your background about that or just sort of that experience of not wanting to go there because people don't know how to hold it. Well, I think that's one of the biggest challenges of inner work is the potential for overwhelm. And many of us, I don't really meet people who had easy upbringings. <laughs> we, for various reasons, we were not given the kind of early environment that let us be kind to our own emotional states. Either, as happened to me, when I was having an emotion my parents didn't approve of, they would sort of give me these looks. And I learned from that, from that, that set of silences what was okay and what was not okay, to feel and to express and to show. Or in some families, there's a more active suppression and even a punishment for having, you know, I'll give you something to cry about. So, and that's not a wise, compassionate teaching about emotional regulation. So we, we do our best, right? Organisms, body organisms are just brilliant at surviving. And so we do our best to find a way to get through those years. And, but that often leaves us with strategies that are not optimum, right? Which might be those distraction strategies like eating, watching TV, watching, being on Facebook and so on, or uh, getting overwhelmed, you know, blowing up or sinking into depression or all the voices in our heads that tell us we shouldn't be feeling this way, what's wrong with us. And those are also strategies for emotional regulation that are not actually very successful. So in my work, really noticing that that was going on for people. This is one of the things I've added to what I learned from Jean Jenlin, is that we need a way to be with what we feel. And he said this as well, that focusing is not getting into the feelings, it's being next to the feelings. It's, it's having a relationship with the feelings. And then I, I got very excited about that viewpoint and I developed it and 
my colleague Barbara McGavin and I developed a concept called self in presence, which means that I, I cultivate my ability to be the compassionate, strong self toward anything inside me that's, that's troubled or challenging or etc. And that means that if I have really rivers of sadness, right, such strong sadness that if I, I'm afraid if I get close to it, I'll be swept away, I'll be drowned. Then I want to be with the sadness and I want to be with that part of me that's afraid it will get drowned. So that I am not either one of those. And so this is about becoming and cultivating that larger I, the I of self in presence. And there's even language that can help us do that. Like the language of, I am sensing something in me is so sad. And I am sensing something in me that's afraid I'll be overwhelmed by it. And that language is, a, is an assistance, it's a support to help us feel our uh, difference. It's, it's not a pushing away. See, the, the, the unfortunate strategies are often a pushing away. You know, I don't want to feel that. I can't feel that. Go away. There's no need to push away. Sometimes I use a little animal friend to help me illustrate this point. I say, I don't have to push away the part of me that's sad. And I also don't have to let it take me over so that I am sad. Instead, I'm in a relationship with it where I am sensing that something in me is sad. Beautiful. And people can try that out. You can try it out and see how it works. No, yeah. that's, that's, so, that's so beautiful. And, and I love that you use um, an animal friend. She just held up a hippo <laughs> on the podcast. If you're watching the video, you saw the little furry hippo. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, I have a big collection of Beanie Babies that I use sometimes to... Um, to represent different mm, somethings. Yeah, <laughs> there's somethings. That's yeah, right. yeah, and 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 I love this piece about um, that it's that it's a something as opposed to a named thing because mm-hmm. with it being a something is implied a sense of curiosity. Um, newness, or as they say, with um, focusing and the felt sense, a freshness, that's a right. freshness, something sort of new that's just here in the present that we're experiencing right now. Um, mm. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Right. So one of the philosophies of focusing that's from the work of Eugene Genlin, who, by the way, is an American philosopher before he is a psychologist and he has a view of reality that's beautiful, how we understand ourselves in the world, that this is a world in which we belong, that we're embedded in nature, we're not separated from it, and so on. And so as we understand who we are, what we are, why we feel what we feel, why we are in relation, how we feel what we feel in relation to other people, it helps to understand that we're interactive, our bodies are interactive processes and not objects. Well, part of, the, part of what that implies is that whatever I feel is only part of what's there. It's like the tip of the iceberg. And so if I, okay, I, I feel scared, I just feel scared. 
And if I stop there and then I start trying to deal with the scared, like I shouldn't feel scared or maybe I can get over feeling scared. I'm treating the scared like an object in, instead of treating it as part of an interactive system. So if instead I say, something in me is scared right now. And the scared isn't the something. Instead, it's a quality of the something right now. Something in me is scared right now. I'm going to feel it. I'm going to sense it. I'm going to notice how scared it is, what kind of scared it is, if it has more than scared. And very quickly, I realize, oh, yeah, there is more there. Today, it might feel scared like a deer in the headlights. Or, oh, and there's a sense of paralysis there, too. And I've, I can follow my, the detail, the fine distinctions that I discover as I feel it. And, that, and what happens is that because we don't treat our insides like they're objects to be manipulated, then we're tapping into the flow, the source of life inside ourselves that is always ready to carry us into new, new possibilities, new adventures. We never have to be stuck feeling the same feelings over and over. And I think that's part of what you're talking about when you say how exciting it is to use the word something. The word something is my favorite word. Yeah, I got <laughs> I, that. I teach all over the world and I always learn the word something in whatever country I'm, I'm teaching in. Right. Because, because it's both specific and vague. And, right. No, beautiful. To what you're feeling. Yes. yes. Yeah. Because it's, it's, again, it's, it's the pointer. It's, it's, and it's the, um, and it's the discovery of what's there. And, and, and I think you just said um, a couple of things that were like, oh, that's something in this case, the example that you were using, uh, oh, maybe it's like a little paralysis underneath the scared. And then mm -hmm. what is that? And then I, I'd like to maybe invite you to, to just maybe talk a little bit about what someone might use as quote unquote, okay descriptors. And of course we know they're all okay, but mm -hmm. things that they may not necessarily be able to at this stage, if they're new, use as words that they would put together to describe this business of a felt sense inside. Yeah. Um, I'll start with an example that one of my clients used um, the other day to say it felt like a balloon was inflating in my chest. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that was a really good indicator of what a felt sense could be. Mm. Um, so just something maybe along that line of how people can start to feel okay with using open-ended language to access their somethings. Mm. Open-ended language, great phrase. <laughs> I like it. Um, <laughs> so, and let's first say uh, that describing what you feel is a very good idea. And that often people label what they feel instead of describing it. They evaluate and label. And so it's a, it's a very facilitative thing to do to pause and sense how you feel and then describe it rather than labeling or evaluating. And so, yes, what your client said, like a balloon expanding in my chest. Well, that's often the kind of description we need. Like it's a simile, it's a metaphor like this, because there's not going to be usually a single word that will describe it. 
I was working with somebody the other day and she says, it's like a wound inside. And then she paused and then she made a slashing gesture. For, like for her, she moved her hand in front of her from top to down and she made a slashing sound like, <sighs> and it was more the gesture and the sound that was the description than even the word wound. Mm. And so it can be gestures, it can be sounds, it can be metaphors, it can be combinations of words like um, jumpy, nauseous, excited. Uh, and what it's an exploration. We're not trying to like pin it down and find find the name for it forever. Instead, we're we're in a dialogue and a relational dialogue. It's like I'm sensing you. What are you like? Oh, and then there's that relief because it loves to be described. I remember once I had one that took me 15 minutes to describe because it was out of pink and it was sort of like an arrow, but it was also sort of like a cushion. And uh, finally it was um, a pink silk arrow shaped cushion. <laughs> an arrow-shaped cushion made of pink silk. And when I got that, my whole body just released and relaxed. And there was a life change that followed from that. So, yeah. Well, yeah, so many questions. That's beautiful. Um, a pink arrow-shaped silk cushion. <laughs> a life change that comes after that. Because what yeah. we're talking about is a shift, ultimately. Yes. Why, are we, why are we doing this? I mean, accessing our own... Um, inner wisdom and whatnot, but I mean, why are we why are we doing this? We're talking about changing our lives, right? It's got to be about that and changing our lives, not just to change something like I just need to rearrange my furniture here, but we, that our lives change in the direction that is its own change, its own direction. That that our bodies know our direction, and and we may have spent years imposing stuff on that like my parents wanted me to be whatever they wanted me to be and I have to do that or uh, some you know in order to get a relationship I have to have a certain kind of body and therefore I have to go to do this diet and this exercise and so there I am working my whatever off to try to get a good body when actually what it's about is a longing for a relationship where I could be spending time with the longing for the relationship. And instead I'm over here in another place doing something else. So let me pause there and just ask about the longing for relationship. Yes. When someone, um, another client that I have, for example, is kind of in the example that you're saying, you know, she says, Oh, oh I have all these commitments to do things like, go to the gym and work with a trainer and whatever, because I want a quote unquote good body. Mm -hmm. right? And, and why does she want a good body? Because she thinks she's supposed to in order to have nobody. She doesn't want to put her profile up until she, her photo looks good. Right. And, and, and I appreciate, um, you know, having been in mass media for 20 years, um, the ways in which we are uh, programmed, if you will, or conditioned to, to need to look, uh, feel like we need to look a certain way in order to be um, acceptable um, in life or in media settings or whatnot. But is that really true? And to get back to your piece about the um, longing to be in relationship, that the um, I want to have a good body in order to 
right? Um, what is the in order to, right? So this is what's believing. Something in me is yeah. believing that I yeah. want to. But that, that the longing for relationship, I find oftentimes taps into someone's, for example, sadness. That's right. Or grief. That's right. Or a much softer, more vulnerable, more tender place inside that is either so terrifying, so um, seemingly incapacitating, yeah. and um, otherwise potentially seemingly so overwhelming that the strategy of uh, working out or quote unquote maintaining a good body uh, feels much safer. Exactly. Uh, and so I'm wondering if you could talk about how we can tap into what's being asked of us from this something inside mm. longing from relationship that may pertain to something more tender or vulnerable like the longing. Well, the, you, you're, you're putting your finger right on the heart of what matters to me because if we are driving our lives from these parts of us that are really from early times, from early early lacks, early losses, then, and we're not turning toward that. We're not recognizing that. It, it's a recipe for uh, endless suffering that isn't going to feed w what needs feeding. So to try to fill the hole in other ways, I, I know it very well because I did it for many, many years. You know, gotta have a boyfriend, gotta have a... And, and the, otherwise, I'll have this emptiness inside. And if I only knew then what I know, what I know now about the building self in presence, that's key. If, if I'm identified with either that small, vulnerable, needy one inside that feels so, so endlessly empty, or if I'm identified with the parts of me that are terrified that somebody will see that, that believes they'll hate me if they see my quote-unquote neediness. If I'm identified with either of those parts, I'm just going to go around in circles. I'm going to be lost. So I need a way to not be identified with my parts. And that means I build my ability to be grounded, to be present, and to turn toward parts of me that need attention and that isn't something that happens overnight. It is something we cultivate, we develop. You start by turning toward any feeling you have and saying hello to it. And practice not fighting it, practice being curious about it. And that kind of builds the muscle until then as you go down through the layers, and it really seems like it's layers, doesn't it? Go down through the layers of the self, into those deeper and, and, and more hidden places where there's usually something vulnerable, small, and young, and be able to be with that without being afraid of it, that does bring healing. That's exactly what it's needed all along. It fills in what's been missing. And then we can approach relationships as a person who feels filled up in ourselves rather than who feels empty, but with the need to hide it. The whole yeah. Thing. Yeah. I, I love all that. And I, you know, I've often used the, the phrase from hole to hole with eight mm. 
and you know in the first one and wh in the second one um, ah. you know um sort of making that shift and one of the things that i can say was instrumental in my ability or capacity to at least begin to be with this experience was twofold one that there was this real like insight around the difference between who we are who we think we are and our conditioning or experiences that may have shaped us and that that sort of set me into this journey of understanding um you know neuroscience and physiology and psychobiology and all these different ways in which our evolutionary uh, history and our negativity bias, our imprinting, our adaptive responses, as you say, that, you know, once served us, maybe we learned to eat when we were six years old because we were a latchkey kid and that was the way we kept ourselves company. But then later on, that didn't work. Or maybe after a assault, we learned that to keep us safe. Yeah. If we were obese, then we wouldn't have unwanted sexual advances or something yeah. like that. And that it's never about I find in my experience and in my clients, it's never about, you know, this cognitive piece necessarily, although there may be some level of awareness around, yes, I'm aware I'm eating the Oreos, but sometimes there isn't. Sometimes it's just, you know, sort of a altered state, if you will. But that getting back to this place of like, I'm okay, there is a part of me that I believe, I have faith, not a belief, but I have faith, really, that there's some part of me, this self and presence, that is okay. And I have to have faith in this because I am aware now that conditioning and imprinting and all these other kinds of experiences have shaped my physiology and my reactions and all of that. And that if I'm knowing that, that's one sort of pillar. And that the other pillar I found was sort of the relational piece. Uh, you could call it mirror neurons. You could call it attachment theory. You could call it, you know, whatever it is where when you're felt and seen and accepted as um, you said, Jean Dunlin did, you know, I think the word uses everybody's welcome or everybody's here who's supposed to be here, or, you know, that that's the way that we are met, that if we haven't really had a lot of those experiences, that if we begin to have some of them mm -hmm. um, with someone that we can maybe begin to feel like that's something that we could do for ourselves. And that might be a teacher, a therapist, could be a friend. But yes. that those two things I felt, for me anyway, were very helpful in being willing and able to kind of start to go into this younger part that can either feel overwhelmed or very fight-like and reactive and kind of a pissy teenager. <laughs> exactly. Well, Barbara McGavin and I uh, develop a method of adding parts work to our own to, to focusing we did it because of our own crises mine with uh, addiction to alcohol and hers with suicidal depression so we started working together in 1992 out of out of being drawn to these shared issues and about within two years we had de begun developing this way of working and there's a we have three parts in our system and the the vulnerable young one we call the small one and then there's the one that can rebel and that's the one we call the defender. And then there's the one that's trying to manage and control. We call that the protector. Uh, when we understand that every part of us has always been trying to save our lives, then it's easier to be in the compassionate place of self and presence. There are no enemies inside. Every part of us has always been trying to save our lives. 
no matter whether that's been the effect or not. No, but I, I love that message and I love that you simplify it and, 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 and you know, perhaps it's corresponding to the trying brain of the, you know, sort of brainstem and the limbic. Yeah, the, many people come up with three parts. And the, pre, yeah, yeah. And the prefrontal cortex and all that, who yeah. knows, but it doesn't right. matter, it doesn't have to be analogous. Um, the point is, is that I, in my experience and in, in that of, of um, working with clients, that that really does seem to be helpful. And that they're all going to be unique to you, meaning that this felt sense that you're going to access is going to have um, little doorways that kind of go down into these other younger parts or places or experiences that a lot of people um, have just, you know, shoved the things in the attic and closed the door, um, slammed it shut and or basement or whatever. Uh, the body is so brilliant and the felt sense is a doorway. I love that metaphor. Yes, the felt sense is a doorway because, you know, all the things that we sort of habitually do and, and especially our habitual, our, our habitual stories uh, tend to prevent us from moving forward in our lives, from changing in the way we need to change, changing in the way the body knows is possible if only there wasn't anything in the way. What's the cost of not going there? Well, imagine dying. Are you lying on your deathbed and looking back on your life? And did I live? Was I myself? That's the cost. And of course, many other costs because illness and accident. I, I believe that many people have accidents or get ill because there's a place in them that's so desperate to wake them up. I was hit by a car uh, while walking in my neighborhood and I didn't choose to have that accident, but it was a kind of wake up call. So many, there are many costs to not waking up, but let's look on the other side of it. What's the, what's the joy? What's the, what's the positive? We are destined to be each of us absolutely unique, unique snowflakes, right? Jewels shining in our uniqueness. Each of us has a contribution to make that isn't like any other. And it's our own longings, our talents. And, I, and these are not just contributions like in some large sphere, although they might be, but contributions within the relationships of your world, the people you love, your, your grandparents, your grandchildren. By being exactly who you are, you can contribute the most to all of those places. And there's a there's a, a creativity to that. There's nothing. It can't be planned. It's it's unexpected until you take that first step out into the road where you where it's foggy, where it isn't where it isn't the road already traveled by a lot of people. Then you then you can take the next step after that. So if we stay in our rut, if we stay within our trauma, it it's too bad, right? Maybe it's Maybe it's what we have to do, but I don't think so. I know that there's a way to move forward and be safe. Parts of us may be afraid that if you step out, if you show yourself, if you let others see who you really are, that you'll get, be smashed down and crushed. That comes from real experiences that it doesn't want you to have to go through again. But it's not true that that's certain to happen the next time. And that's what I like to help people do is find that place where they're longing and their need for groundedness and safety 
can come together. And the longing is to be fully who you are, whatever that is. Yeah? No, I think that that's so beautiful. And I also think that it's terrifying, terrifying to some folks um, because it's such a um, carte blanche, like, could I really want that? Could I really? Could I dare? Could I dare? Yeah. But, the, but I think what's important to know is that the book of who you are is written in your body. And you can read it there. You don't have to go up into your head and imagine, try to think up what it is you really want with your life. And it's often found in your longings. I, I, I sent out a video recently to my, to my group to my mailing list that was about starting with your longing and then going from what you long for to what you know and doing that as a body awareness practice. And it's, it is very true and just human to have a part of us that's afraid we'll never get what we long for that shuts it down. It says, you know, you'll just suffer if you long for that. You'll never get it. Well, what's interesting about that is that what you long for might not be the specific outcome that you can imagine right now. Coming back to relationships again, right? It might be, oh, I long for the certain kind of man or woman who is a certain kind of person, has a certain quality, has, looks a certain way. But if you stay in your body, if you sense what's really, what's really longed for, what it longs for you to have, if you have that, what the feeling is that you want, it wants you to have if you have that. What happens is we step back from these external characteristics. When I met the guy that I'm with at, still after 18 years, he, he didn't look at all like my external characteristics. But I had done inner work about what I want to be able to feel when I'm in the presence of a person who's right for me. And so at first there was this mismatch between, I see what I'm seeing here, and I feel what I'm feeling here. You know what? I'm going to go with the feeling. Mm. And, uh, and we've been together 18 years, and he's the greatest guy on earth. And, and he looks great to me. <laughs> yeah, because you're, yeah, because your soul is satisfied and in sync, right? Um, but it's yeah. amazing that you know, we can't, we miss so much. Um, because so don't just start with what you think you long for and then, and then stop there and say, but I won't get that. Mm. But let longing be the beginning of a process that you then follow, follow down, follow into exploring. As we were saying earlier, describe it. Sense other words that describe it. Call it something in me and so on. Something in me. It reminds me of, um, you know, um, Dr. Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communications uh, method. He always is asking the question, what does it need? What do you need? Yeah. yeah. And, and I love that work. Yeah. Beautiful work, very complimentary in many ways. Oh, um, because I met Marshall Rosenberg six months after I met Eugene Jan. So <laughs> it's really in my work as well. Yeah. Yes, yeah, and that's evident. Um, and, mm. and, 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 and they're, they're, they're touching into the same um, place. Um, you said two things that I want to uh, address. One is that it's in the body, um, that we don't have to spend so much time maybe in the, the cognitive left brain where our I think particularly our Western society uh, encourages us to reside and sort of set up, you know, camp. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then um, you also, just to go back before, you had said that it had helped you shift from 
alcoholism and then from your um, partner, uh, your business partner's um, uh, suicidal. Suicidal depression. Uh, right. And that I don't know if this is something you want to get into, you know, extensively, but I know a lot of people spend a lot of time in things like 12 step programs. And, you know, I'm not saying that they're not effective, but I know as someone who had tried them before, it hadn't, it didn't have a sustainable quality to me. Um, and so I'm just wondering what it is about the felt sense and the wisdom in the body that can be perhaps even a little bit easier to um, start to practice once we cultivate it, as you used the word earlier, um, than trying to quote unquote figure it out from a left brain perspective. Absolutely. I don't think addictions can be figured out. I think addiction is an inner war between something that's desperately trying to give us some kind of relief and escape from what it feels would be unbearable if we got in touch with it. And another part of us that sees that activity as uh, disgusting, shameful, frightening. And when I was addicted to alcohol, my whole day was made up of an argument between, you know, oh, you know, tonight I'll have some wine. No, you, that's bad. You know, what makes you think you're a, you're a teacher, you go around the world and teach you, you know, that's not enlightened. Oh, and the other one saying, well, I, I deserve to relax. I, I, you know, other people do it, you know, and this frustrating and stressful argument, which ended at five o'clock when I was in the liquor store buying the bottle of wine. Another reason to start drinking was the argument ended for that day, just started up again the next morning. So it's an endless cycle. It, and what Barbara McGavin and I like to say is that, that can, that's a war that cannot be won. Neither side can win. And that's why we need to shift levels and cultivate self and presence, which is the, the, the place from where we're not in the war anymore. And when I could, first I stopped drinking, but I knew it was going to be only temporary unless I found some way to resolve the deeper issues. And then with the help of Barbara, we developed this method as we were working with this crisis. Uh, I learned that I could turn toward the part of me that wanted to drink and the part of me that wanted to stop it and hold them both in compassionate awareness and then in turn go deeper with either one of them. And I, I learned amazing things from the part of me that wanted to drink, what it wanted what it wanted for me from drinking. And I'm curious if you would be sh willing to share just maybe a couple of those, just to give people insight in terms of what it is that, um, you know, maybe that little, um, that little one tugging on the apron, so to speak, in the kitchen saying, no, pay attention to me. Well, a couple of uh, things that the part that wanted me to drink wanted, is that what you're saying? Or... Yeah, just maybe some examples of when you, you said you stopped drinking first, just to be clear enough to be able to kind of look more deeply at this, but that it wouldn't have been sustainable. But then you started to get curious about whatever yeah. it was, the longing, the felt right. sense inside that was That's being pulled to the liquor store and then perhaps also getting curious and longing to know more about the part that was saying, no, no, you're a 
person mm-hmm. who teaches everywhere and you can't yeah. do this. Yeah. And where those may have come from in your own background or what they were believing. Well, the work itself starts just with a simple relationship to turn toward the part of me that wants to drink, to turn toward the part of me that's ashamed of drink of my drinking. And in either case to have a dialogue there of, of inquiry and compassion. At that point, I don't know where it came from. I can only say later from what I learned, oh yeah, I see now where that came from. So, and I think that's part of what we're saying when we say the cognitive is not the process. And if, if I start by asking where, and I know you're not suggesting this, but if I had started by asking where does this come from, I don't think that would have helped. So it starts with this inner relate. There's a part of me that wants to drink and I've never turned toward it. I've only just acted it, acted it out, acted on it, or I've told it that it was bad. So it's a revolution to actually turn toward the part that wants to drink or the part that wants to eat sweets late at night or the part that wants to stay on Facebook way beyond the time I said I was there. Whatever it is, this is the part to turn toward and say, hello, I'd like to get to know you better. And let a feel of that come in the body so that you're getting to know it at that deeper level. And, and what I found myself asking it is, what were you trying to help me with? What were you wanting for me? And it showed me in images that it wanted me to be able to be sensual. It wanted me to be able to be spontaneous. It wanted me to be able to relax really quickly and easily. And it wanted me to be able to be creative. Beautiful. Now, some methods would say, well, let's think of some other ways to get. Our, our method simply involves listening. And so I said to it, I really hear you. I really get that that's what you wanted for me. And maybe you could show me in my body right now what that would feel like if, if I were feeling it right now. And I noticed that I actually could feel this spontaneous, relaxed, sensual feeling that the part that wanted to drink wanted for me. I could feel it just sitting there, sitting with my friend. And what happened, you know, just to fast forward, in fact, I had been living in a life where I wasn't allowing myself to be spontaneous in the daytime. I had so many rules and inhibitions about what a good person is. And I came from an alcoholic family background where I saw my father doing the same thing. Being a certain way in the daytime and when he drank, being more, more joyful and funny, but then all of that shutting down the next day. And so in the years that followed, I just got much more spontaneous, creative, sensual, and I would say even goofy uh, in my normal life that was no longer split off and cut off. Right. Beautiful. Yeah, I love that. And I, I really appreciate you um, and your willingness to share that that's sort of the, yeah. the way in which that that shift and sort of unlayering when you said hello to that something, and in this case, the something that wanted to drink and sort of wanted to get to know it, that it was asking you for these things to be sensual or... or, or it, was helping me, it, was, it was helping me do that. In fact, it was helping me do that. Yeah. Right. And the cost of um, the method it was using to help you do that. Oh, had absolutely. A, right. And so then 
the question is, um, how, and then you said that you were able to then invite in the sense of, well, what would it be like if I just allowed myself to feel sensual right here, right now, not having alcohol, mm-hmm. and that your body allowed for that shift to happen once mm-hmm. you had actually witnessed and met what the need was that was being presented. Right. Now, of course, there were layers underneath that. And there was the other side and what it was worried about. And the, the small one, right, the vulnerable one inside was also involved. That this part that was drinking was also trying to keep awareness away from some feelings. And it is notable that I started drinking addictively about three months after my father died. And I didn't really engage in the grieving process which would have included dealing with my difficult feelings about him. It wasn't just, Oh, I miss you, dad. It was, like, yeah. why were you like you, why were you like you were? So, so the, there's also, what was it doing for me? It was also helping me keep awareness away from the whole set of feelings that another part of me was afraid I couldn't handle. So it's, you know, those of us who love personal growth, we've come to really love the intricacy of these inner dynamics and but in a way it's it it has a kind of simplicity to it as well which is that when we don't feel how we feel that stays stuck right yes beautiful and 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 that and that we live from that place of stuckness and 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 just to add one more thing and if we feel what we feel in a identified way if we let what we feel overwhelm us that's not really feeling it it's not feeling it awarely so if i only have two choices to not feel what i feel by by denial and repression suppression or letting it overwhelm me and sweep over me neither one of those is actually the kind of feeling of the feeling that will allow it to change so yes well that's why like to use your term the self in presence being with um touching into um, a little bit of what would be overwhelm or titrating back as we would use in somatic experiencing languages, you know, yes. the, 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 okay, not too much, but let's get curious enough about it to at least familiarize ourselves with it to say, hello, you don't say, oh, hello, you know, come in and, you know, live here for the next six months. You say, hello, you know, like, <laughs> knock me over. <laughs> right. Like, you know, in, in mindfulness practice, I know that there's a story in Buddhism um, about Mara, the, the sort of, you know, more nefarious, um, you know, figure. And um, they say, well, can you invite Mara in for tea? And the idea that w- when we begin to make friends with that, which is um, uh, scary to us or challenging to us, that we begin to uh, cultivate that relationship and maybe see that they're not just a big bad wolf after all, but that they uh, have a reason to kind of be here. Um, we're almost out of time. Two points I just wanted to make, which was, one, focusing is something that people can start to cultivate um, actually without a therapist and with joining an online um, focusing community. You say it's something that people don't know that much about. Um, it's also, I know, something that's part of the foundation of a lot of other uh, kinds of uh, work like somatic experiencing or coherence therapy or other kinds of things that um, really work on transformative and not just behavioral changes. And the other thing is um, about your work and your books that lay people can access uh, if they would like to learn more about it. And um, I'll, of course, share your website. 
Well, focusing is meant to be something that people do themselves. And when I joined that focusing community in Chicago those many years ago, people, we were doing it in pairs with each other. And it's not learning how to counsel the other person. It's simply learning to be there for them as they do focusing themselves. So that's what I do mainly in my life now is I teach people focusing for themselves. My first book, The Power of Focusing, was written in 1996. So proud of that. And then I have a book called The Radical Acceptance of Everything that goes a bit further with that. And my latest book is called Presence. A guide to transforming your most challenging emotions. So this is about the whole thing we were talking about, about how to cultivate self in presence and not be flooded by these potentially very um, stressful emotions that I'm afraid a lot more of us are feeling more of these days in the, in the challenging world we live in. So I would invite people to, to come to focusingresources.com. There's a free e-course called Get Bigger Than What's Bugging You. And I absolutely love helping people to learn and explore their inner worlds and to change their lives. And that is so evident and I so appreciate your presence here today and um, your willingness to share your own journey, all of your beautiful work, um, your collaborations, and um, really embodiment of uh, wanting to be able to let people know that this is possible. I think that that's always really um, nice and important for people to really feel like, hey, they're not just talking the talk, they're walking the walk, and now they're um, sharing and inviting us into um, this healing space where we come from this self and presence and that um, we can just have a shift in our lives and, and really be whoever it is that we're meant to be in our unique snowflakeness of it all. So I would give a word of advice to wise girls, and that is whatever you're doing, if it doesn't end up with you feeling stronger and more empowered, I would question. You should always be feeling stronger and more empowered by whatever method you do. And thank you, Francesca, for all the good work you're doing to spread the word about these great practices. Wonderful. Ann Weiser Cornell, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Um, I will share your information and um, take good care. And honestly, um, a real commitment to service. So thank you. Thank you so much. Bye.